So what makes you cry? There's a great deal of sadness in our world these days from prominent politicians to fallen preachers to happy fathers. Tears are in the news. And I saw a recent study of 300 adults that revealed that um, men and women cry differently. Go figure. Um, but uh, it says women, I'm not, I, I didn't make this statistic up, I'm just sharing the news. Don't shoot the messenger, as Jeremiah would say, um, that women, women cry on average 64 times a year, while men cry some 17 times a year. Now, in some families, that's reversed, but those are the general statistics. What makes you cry? A sad, a sad movie, or a rainy day, or, or Monday, or your, your kids, or... Um, the memory of a lost saint, your parents. Um, if you're ever weepy, take heart, because the Scriptures not only tell us that Jesus wept, but in fact we learn that Jeremiah is a weeping prophet who, who suffered even in the suffering of his people, their sinfulness and the future suffering that they would endure brought suffering in his heart. It was Joseph Parker who said, preach to the suffering and you will never lack a congregation because there's a broken heart in every pew. I start with that assumption tonight. What I love about Jeremiah is that there was also a broken heart in the pulpit. So what makes us cry? If you can find out what makes a person cry, you can learn a great deal about his or her life. Jeremiah's heart was broken by the same things that break the heart of God. Would you open your Bibles with me tonight to Jeremiah chapter 1? I'm going to read just some verses from Jeremiah 1 and then some verses from Jeremiah 31 and bring this together. Jeremiah in one night is an ambitious undertaking, but I have uh, prepared well, I hope, and I can do that in a timely manner. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Moving from sadness to hope, that's sort of... Jeremiah's life. You see it in microcosm. We'll see it after the uh, first of the year as we look at Lamentations when he goes from deep sorrow to saying, nevertheless, I have hope. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's look at the beginning of his story. And it's, it's found in Jeremiah chapter 1. And I begin reading with verse 4 where it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And then in chapter 31, verse 27, we see the fulfillment of that promise as Jeremiah sees a vision of the days to come. 
It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray together. Father, we love this story. The story of the way that you found us in our sin. And you made a new covenant with us, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your law that shows us our need for you and how we fall short of your glory. We thank you for knowledge, Lord, the promise that we will know you. And we thank you for the grace that brings that knowledge into being. And tonight, Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Jeremiah had a tough job. He was the son of a priest. He lived in a little village called Anatoth, and there God's word came to him. In a period of time, after, um, after about a hundred years after Isaiah wrote, and we saw Isaiah's prophecy, about a hundred years later, Jeremiah comes on the scene. And he lives in the last years of the kingdom of Judah. And just as God promised um, to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah that there would come a time when the very people of Babylon who had come and seen the treasures of Israel would come and take those treasures away with them, Jeremiah gets to see the day when the Babylonians come to conquer Israel. And on the one hand, he loves his people with a fierce love and with a deep and abiding love for his people. And on the other hand, he understands that their sin has brought about this disaster. And the message God gives to him is, you get to call upon your people to surrender to their enemies. Anybody here want that job? When the enemies are outside the city gates about to march in, and instead of saying to your people, fight for all your worth against your enemies, your message is, yes, that's right, God is going to take you as a captive into, into a far land, and you will be there for 70 years. But I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not evil. So seek the prosperity of the city that you are in as long as you are there because if that city in Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. But after 70 years, I will bring my people out of their captivity and I will make a new covenant with them. And it won't be a covenant engraved 
on tablets of stone, but it will be a covenant engraved on the tablets of human heart. So they will not read in a book so that they can know who I am, but every one of them from the least to the greatest will know me because they will know me in their hearts. And God says, I will forgive their sin and I will forget their sin. And Jeremiah was called upon to preach that message in his day. And I love what Eugene Peterson writes about Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah's life and Jeremiah's book are a single piece. He wrote what he lived and he lived what he wrote. There is no dissonance between his life and his book. Some people write better than they live. And some people live better than they write. But Jeremiah, writing or living, was the same Jeremiah. And oh, how we need integrity of life and ministry today. Like Jeremiah, we live in a time of great idolatry and immorality. And to be a prophet today, to say, to dare to stand and say, thus says the Lord to a culture that has long since cared about what God says. If you stand as a prophet in this culture, you risk rejection and you will provoke persecution. But God has put us here for such a time as this because he wants us to announce not the bad news, but the good news of forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ to all the nations. And our final word to the world is God's final word to the world, that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Our message is not condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And we live not just with an understanding of the old covenant, but of the new covenant in which Christ paid the penalty for our sins. So out of our sadness about sin emerges our hope in Him. I mean to say that we announce good news, but that good news may sound at first hearing to people around us like bad news. So Jeremiah spent part of his life weeping over the, the sins of his people. He opposed the sinfulness of their sin, and he announced God's judgment on them because they had broken covenant. They had failed to keep faithfulness in their relationship with God. I remember the first time I read uh, Jeremiah chapter 1. I was um, a young boy. I was reading in my children's living Bible that my Aunt Alice sent me when I lived over in Germany, and God was beginning to call me to preach. And when I read these words before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I have set you apart. And it was not long after that that I told my pastor God had called me to preach, and not long after that he stood me in front of the people and said, go ahead and preach. And I remember preaching, and I remember feeling at that point that I'm, I'm too young to preach. I remember in high school, my brother coming home from Baylor with a Tim Shepard CD where Tim Shepard sang, I'm just a child with my plans and dreams and visions. How can I go? But Lord, how can I stay? So little time. I have lessons to be learning, but hearts are yearning to be shown the way. And after my freshman year, going to become the pastor of a church and uh, 
and realizing from the people that in their minds I was too young to be their pastor, but God had called me anyway. And then, and then after four years there, thinking finally I'm old enough to be a pastor and going to our second church with Melanie and hearing the people say, yeah, you're 22 years old. The two people who voted against us said, we voted against you because you're just too young. And I'd already been a pastor for four years. And then at 29, going to our next church and the people in that church saying to us, well, We'd rather not tell the congregation how old you are because we think they will vote against you if they know. Today, when I see a 35-year-old, I think, wow, what a young person. <laughs> but that's how old I was when I came here 13 years ago. And so my message to you tonight from Jeremiah is, you are not too young to do what God wants you to do. You're not too young to do what God wants you to do. He calls us when he calls us. My pastor said to me, if God had wanted you to start preaching when you were 45, he would have called you when you were 45. The fact that he called you when you were 12 or 13 must mean he wants you to start now. And he had the audacity to stand me in front of a group of people, which I think, looking back, took a great deal of courage, or, or should we say folly, on his part. But he was confident in the confidence that God had given me in his call. And I want you to hear what God says to Jeremiah. All I want you to do, he said, is I want you to be over nations of people, not literally as a king, but in your message, you will speak as my spokesman to nations. And here's what you get to do. You get to destroy, you get to uproot, you get to overthrow, you get to cause devastation. What a message God gives to Jeremiah, but he also says to him, but then I'm going to let you, after you wreak havoc, then I'm going to let you build and plant. Now, why was Jeremiah such a sad man? It's because his people were such a sinful people. You see it there in, in chapter 2, when, when God begins to just pour out his heart and says, you know, it's sort of like a long um, declaration of divorce between God and his people. He says, I have been faithful to you, but you have not been faithful to me. And, and your priests and your prophets and your people are all in this together. And the problem is that you have exchanged your glory. Chapter 2, verse 11, you have exchanged your glory for worthless idols. He says, my people have committed two sins. Verse 13, they've forsaken me the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have uh, worshipped worthless idols, he says, and they themselves have become worthless. Did you know you will become like whatever you worship? And when they worshipped worthless idols, and it it goes on, it gets worse. He says that they prophesy by Baal, the priests are disobedient, the leaders are sinful. And he says at the end of chapter 5, and my people love it this way. And Paul predicted a day when people would have itching ears, when they, would, when they would gather around themselves, preachers who would tell them what they want to hear. And Jeremiah lived in just such a day when the people didn't want to hear what God had to say because they had committed themselves to their idols. Mark Devers expresses it this way, imagine going home and making a casserole and putting it in the oven and then pulling it out and bowing down to it and saying, you are my God. In fact, they worshipped their idols. They worshipped the objects that they had made with their hands and their idolatry. Chapter 5, verse 7, led them to immorality. God says, I've supplied their needs, and yet they have committed 
adultery. They are committed to adultery. They are lusty stallions. Everyone's saying, I want my neighbor's wife. That's the world in which Jeremiah lived and ministered. I wonder if he could have envisioned a day where there would be entertainment on boxes in our homes with television shows called Cheaters that talk about the reality of immorality and adultery in the world. Our world is not so different from the world that made Jeremiah weep. And he says, not that the people were not religious. In fact, in chapter 7, he confronts their transactional religion because they would go up to the temple and they would say, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We are God's chosen people. We have everything going for us. And And he says to them, reform your ways and your actions and I'll let you live in this place. But do not trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. I'll make you like Shiloh. He says, I will will destroy your land. And if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly and don't oppress the alien who lives among you, the fatherless or the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place. And if you don't follow other gods to your own harm, Then I'll let you live in this place. But will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe to do these detestable things? And when I think about that transactional religion, God, we'll do something for you. We'll go to church. Then you do for us what we want you to do. I think about people in our culture who who sort of choose occasionally to go to church and then say, I know God owes me now and nothing bad will befall me. And when something bad happens, they come to the place where they're angry at God and say, but wasn't I good to God? Why wasn't he good to me? But the truth about our God is, even though we are good some of the time or maybe just every once in a while or maybe even not very often, our God is good all the time and our religion with him is not transactional as Paul says to the Romans as if we could ever put God in our debt as if God owes anybody anything he has given us life he has given us his son and he invites us to a relationship they've broken the old covenant which by the way had a prerequisite of obedience but Jonathan Edwards years ago looked at these texts and he said I think the difference between the old covenant and the new is the old covenant required obedience and God's people didn't offer it but the new covenant in Christ doesn't require obedience it promises obedience that there will come a day when God's law is written on our hearts and we will obey him no wonder Jeremiah weeps in chapter 8 he weeps over their missed opportunity the harvest is past The summer has ended and we are not saved, they say. And he says, is there no balm in Gilead? I wish my head were a fountain so that I could weep. And they threatened him and they persecuted him. There were all these false prophets who caused him great, great grief. When he wrote out the book of Jeremiah the first time, the king took it and cut it and put it in the fire, piece by piece by piece, as he read Jeremiah's book. They imprisoned him, they threw him in a cistern, and he sunk in the mud. He was a weeping prophet, we might say, for good reason. Thomas Carlyle was one of England's leading writers, a tremendous intellect back in the 19th century. 
He spent years studying the French Revolution back in the day before computers and word processors, before, the, before there were even typewriters. By hand, he wrote out his book and gave it to his friend, uh, John Stuart Mill. And Mill took the manuscript and was so caught up in this amazing history, the greatest history that had been written of the French Revolution at that time. And he took the manuscript home and he started reading it hour after hour, all through the night. He read it page after handwritten page. And as he finished the page, he would place it on the floor. When he finished, he went downstairs to eat breakfast. The cleaning lady went upstairs, found a pile of paper on the floor and threw it in the fireplace. And John Stuart Mill had to tell his friend Carlisle that the book, the only copy of the book, had been burned. Predictably, Carlisle screamed at the cleaning lady. He screamed at John Stuart Mill. He screamed at God. And then eventually he regained control and prayed, Lord, forgive me. Years ago, I gave you my life. You are my Lord and Savior. Therefore, the book was yours, Lord. Your book is gone. What do you want me to do? He heard a clicking noise outside. He looked outside the window and he saw there some masons who were putting bricks in place. Brick, and they would tap the brick until it was in the exact right spot. And they would put the cement around it and then place another brick and another brick. And he sat down and picked up a blank piece of paper and started writing again. And the second book, I am told, was far superior to the first. So what in your life has been taken and burned What have you lost? Jeremiah had reasons to weep. In chapter 16, God tells him, you can't ever get married because you don't want to have a wife and children in a culture as evil as this. I remember my friend Calvin Miller said years ago, I have to have God to live, and I would really like to have my wife. And after that, everything else is negotiable. Well, for Jeremiah, he's not even offered the opportunity to marry the people's Sin would not go away. And in chapter 17, he sums it up by saying, as if somebody had taken a diamond and scratched a piece of glass, sin has been engraved on the hearts of God's people. Remember that image. Their hearts are engraved with sin. But Jeremiah, in chapter 31, pictures a different day when their hearts are no longer engraved with sin, but engraved with God's law written on their hearts. So God not only said you're going to uproot and destroy, but God said to Jeremiah in chapter 1 verse 10, you're going to build and you're going to plant. One day he walked into a potter's house, chapter 18 tells us, and he watched this potter carefully crafting the clay and building this beautiful vase and it looked perfect from the outside, but the potter saw something in the pot that nobody else could see. And as he was building it up, if you've ever seen a potter do that and the wheel is spinning and he's using the water and making it perfect and it's smooth and it looks really good and then The potter smashes it back again and he starts all over again. And then God says to Jeremiah, I am the potter and you are the clay. And if I choose to make you over again, that is perfectly within my prerogative. If I find something faulty in you, I'm the one who made you and I'm the one who can remake you. My friend Ralph West imagines what it's like for the cup that's being formed by the potter and how painful it may be to be pinched and squeezed and placed into a mold. But God knows 
what he's about. God knows what he is doing when he makes us, when he forms us. In Jeremiah's life, there was this experience of God working in that way. And the promise is that the God who made us is the same God who can remake us. In a remote Swiss village years ago, there stood a wonderful church known as the Mountain Village Cathedral, and the Gothic design impelled faith. Its tall towers seemed to soar toward heaven. Inside, along the inside, were these marble pillars and majestic arches, and they alternated in a steady rhythm, pointing toward the great altar. But the most impressive thing was the organ. Everybody loved the organ. People came from all around to hear the organ. And then one day the organ started having problems and eventually it fell silent. And they brought in musicians and experts and none of them could fix the organ. And then one day an old man knocked on the door and they allowed him to come in. He said, I'd like to take a look at the organ. And he, for two whole days he worked in almost total silence. But on the third day at high noon there pealed forth from the tower beautiful organ music again. And the people said, how did you fix it? Nobody else could. He said, well, it was an inside job. I built the organ years ago. And I know how to fix the organ. And if tonight in my life and yours there is something broken, believe me when I say that the God who formed you in the womb who knew you before he formed you in the womb, the God who had a marvelous purpose for your life and for mine, that God who imagined our life before we were born so that no person in this room is an accident, that God who intended your life intends more for your life than that it should be broken like a potter shapes clay, like an organ builder repairs the organ. God wants to remake and reshape us. And so God gave Jeremiah not only bad news, but good news to preach. Oh, there were times when Jeremiah tried to resign chapter 20. He says, God, you fooled me. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to be the one who tells the people to surrender. I don't want to be the one who's thrown into the, 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 the cistern and who sinks into the mud. But God continues to say to him, you will speak for me. And Jeremiah says, when I tried not to preach, God's word was like a fire in my bones. And I couldn't not speak for him because he called me to speak. And like a father, God, chapter 24, brings his people back to himself. He says, my eyes will watch over them for their good and I will bring them back to this land. It's true you're going to go into captivity, God says, but I am going to bring my people back again. It's true that I may punish for sin, but I will build them up and I will not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me. And God asked his people, you know chapter 29, to seek the prosperity of the city around them. And then God says, after 70 years, I will bring you back. I don't have plans to harm you. I have plans to give you hope and a future. Some of our children sang on that second doorpost album with Dave and Jess where they have that song, you will seek me and you will find me. It comes from Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I remember not long after Casey moved in with us that she was singing to get ready for that album. We said, which song is your favorite? That song is my favorite because for her to look into the future and believe that God had a hope and a future for her was amazingly good news, not only for her, but also for us. 
And what God says in chapter 31 is, like a father, I love you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Verse 3, I've drawn you with loving kindness. And then finally in verses 27 to 31, God makes this promise that he will forgive and forget their sins. He will remember them no more. This is God's promise. Not that you and I will have a trouble-free, pain-free life but that God will be able to bring beauty out of the ashes. That He will be able to take that pain. And unlike, I I sat, listen, I sat in a World Religions Conference one day and listened to all the other religions try to explain pain. But only Christianity says that we serve the suffering God. The God who knows us enough to be able to bring beauty out of the ashes. I read about Nancy and Ed Wazinga, who went to sing in choir at their church's Festival of Lights in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And when they came home, they discovered that their home had burned down. And to complicate matters, they had brought into their home two young teenagers. Their friend Barb Post had uh, been very ill. And so they took her two kids, Jeff and Katie, in. And following, sat, on the following Saturday, neighbor, neighbors organized a party to sift through the ashes And all that they could find that was of redeeming value that was left of that house that had burned to the ground was a single piece of paper that had miraculously escaped the flames. And this is what it said. Contentment. Realizing that God has already provided everything we need for our present happiness. Out of the ashes, God provides and brings beauty. And God tells Jeremiah... He says in chapter 32, go and buy land. (laughs) They're going into exile, but I want you to go and buy land. And Jeremiah, who's just so obedient, goes and buys the land. And then he says, oh, sovereign Lord, you're telling me we're going to be taken into captivity. You're telling me the Babylonians are going to burn this place down. And you told me to buy land. Why would I buy land in this city? But God says, because I want you to be a harbinger of hope. I want you to show these people that I'm not finished with them yet, that even though they're being punished for their sins, that there is hope for them. I love Chris Tomlin's song, You're the God of this city. You're the Lord of these people. Greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. I know there may be larger and wealthier and more prominent and more visible churches in this city, but let it not be said that any church loves this city more than we do. That any church prays for this city more than we do. God says in 32.26, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? I may send you into exile, but I will bring you back. And God promises to answer their prayers and ours. 33 verse 3, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things which you do not know. I had a friend once who prayed with me on Wednesday mornings. And he used to say to me, Dwayne, you will know that it is God when all you can do is hang on. You will know that it is God when all you can do is hang on. That's the story of Jeremiah's life. He couldn't fix things. He couldn't change things. He couldn't even make his own life better, much less convince the people that they were headed for disaster. He preached with all of his heart to people who were covering their ears saying, we don't want to hear what you have to say. But at the end of the day, God worked in his life in a way so that his prophecies were fulfilled. And this is how you can tell whether a prophet is really from God, whether or not what he says actually comes true. 
And everything Jeremiah promised came true. When Nehemiah and Ezra brought the people back, we've studied Nehemiah and Ezra, and they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the walls. Everything that Jeremiah promised came true. And here's the real promise that will be fulfilled. We read in the book of Revelation, and I saw a new city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. God promises that the world begins in a garden, and out of that garden comes a lot of pain because of the sin that was chosen in that garden. But the world ends with a city. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be a part of that city. I'm not telling you what life's going to be like here. I can't promise you how it's going to end here. But I can promise you this. Even though we don't get to choose the way our lives go, we do get to choose the way we respond to the struggles and the difficulty in our lives. And I love the story of William Wyler, who was the director of the famous movie Ben-Hur. You remember that famous scene? I remember as a boy watching Charlton Heston go round and round in that chariot. And the other chariot had the, the sort of uh, uh, knives on it that cut up his wheels. And, and uh, I heard the story of how, how Charlton Heston, when he was filming that, that scene, he, he um, did his own stunts and he took a beating. I mean, he fell out of the chariot. He fell over the front of the chariot. Horses stepped on him. He was beaten around in the chariot. He finally went to William Wyler and said, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. I can't even stay in the chariot, much less win the race for you so that you can film it. And I love what the director said to him. William Wyler said, look, Charlton, your job is to stay in the chariot. My job is to make sure you win the race. And sometimes in this life, like Jeremiah, we're just hanging on by a thread and life is fragile and life is uncertain and we lift our eyes honestly to God and we say, you know what, I didn't anticipate this one and I'm not even sure I can stay in the chariot and that's when our great heavenly father, the sovereign Lord, as Jeremiah calls him, the God who is in control, looks down and says, you know what, you stay in the chariot and I'll make sure you win the race. And those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who persevere to the end, will be saved. You can take that to the bank. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the promise that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Lord, I don't know why we're weeping today. It may be because of some burden in our lives. It may be, Father, that we are weeping because of our own sin. It may be because of the sin of somebody else that has broken our hearts. Or it may be, Lord, that we can't fix something that's going on in our lives or the lives of our family members. But I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who sees every tear that falls. And you are the God who wept over the sin of your people, who wept over the suffering of your friend. And in this world that breaks our hearts, I thank you, God, that this world cannot break our hearts in such a way that you would be prevented from healing them. So tonight, Lord, I pray that you would heal every broken heart in this room. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.